0: I'm Mark Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Today's guest is one of the elder statesmen of the cyber insurance market, and a returning guest to the show. Way back in episode 10 of the Voice of Insurance, Axis' global head of cyber, Dan Truman, made a prediction that the cyber market was on the cusp of big change and that cyber insurance would never be sold more cheaply than it was back then. Well, two years and 111 episodes later, and the hard cyber market that followed Dan's comments has rarely been out of the news. I'd use today's episode as a really good example of the difference between a podcast and a recorded interview. That's because instead of being just a series of questions and answers, this encounter is very much a conversation, and a lively one at that. Anyone looking for an update on the highly pressurised cyberspace should look no further. We talk about the repricing the sector has gone through, and when this might end, lost trends and what cybercriminals are getting up to, as well as advances in modelling systemic risk and the potential for unlocking the capital the class is definitely going to need if it's going to meet rising demand without starting to hit supply constraints. Dan is excellent, an extraordinarily well-informed company, and I can highly recommend a listen. Enjoy the podcast. Dan, welcome back to The Voice of Insurance. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for having me back. Oh, It's really great to have you on the show. In fact, I was thinking back to two years ago when you were on the very young Voice of Insurance then. You said something really interesting and you said that cyber insurance was never going to be cheaper than it was then. And then lo and behold, a very hard market happened almost the day afterwards.
1: And I suspect you at the time thought it was just another underwriter desperately talking up uh, the need for price. Yes, I have experience (laughs) of that, yes. (laughs) Um, Actually, I'll be totally honest. I I suppose we have a big enough book, we're desperately always trying to do what I call the triangle, which is turn data into information, information to insight and insight to action. And we'd started to see a few things. And we'd certainly started to see one of those really classic challenges there is in the market. You'll know this better than almost anyone else with all the conversations you have, but, you know, where's the market, particularly on the specialty side, we don't mind severity. We can look at that. We can work out where we want to play in a tower or work out what we can do about terms and conditions or transferring that risk or even just, you know, adapting pricing for that idea. To a certain extent, you know, we don't mind lots of frequency. There are lots of methodologies, whether that's in the wider market for dealing with frequency. We were starting to see both coming at once. And I think that's a real challenge,
0: and that was a real issue. And you're not really being paid for either of them. We know we've got a cat risk here, we've got a systemic risk, but are we being paid for that? And also, if we're burning all our premium on nutritional losses, well...
1: And I'm so glad, because I'd like to double-click on that in a minute, Mark, because I think that it is... (laughs) The other thing we were definitely seeing was that there was high potential for model updates, model changes, deeper understanding of that systemic exposure... And that was definitely coming down the tunnel at us like a, a train without headlights, quite frankly. We weren't quite sure when it was going to hit or be an issue. But I think there's a deeper understanding. I mean, it's insurance 101 to understand your acts and to really look at that. And so, since the early days of the cyber insurance market, I've been lucky enough to try to work through this particular problem for over 20 years. We've always tried to work out what are those points of logical. And physical aggregation, as in what has been shared within the software, within the processes, within the technology of what we're doing, and what is shared physically in terms of the same types of setups, the same types of processes, same types of issues, and how do those work together? Trying to unpack that and actually turn that into something genuinely probabilistic beyond just a, a lot of limits management has been a challenge, and it really has been a challenge. And I think what we were definitely seeing. As we said, to come back to that, it's this idea of we knew that people were getting better at that and it was likely to come up with a number, certainly in its early days, and I think there's still work to do, a lot of work to do, and I'm sure we can talk about that, but we were likely to be higher than we were currently thinking when we actually looked at that idea. What does a tail really look like and what are some of those really concerning events in the, the return periods look like and then how are we going to price for those? Because we do. We have to price for them in the mean, and I think that's one of the challenges. We can explain very easily... I say very easily, but at least it feels more logical to our clients and to the broking community that severity and frequency, they can see that change. And ransomware was the core example of the effortless cyber. And at least those brokers were placing enough risk that we're having ransomware losses. So that wasn't a challenge for them. And so we could easily explain that we're going to need to do something about that. What has been more challenging, obviously, is this idea of we still need to adapt for this pricing in the tail. And for that reason, there's still some way to go both in being able to explain, but actually I think in this market as well. I don't think we're there yet.
0: So you've been, we've been having two years of a reset and obviously lots of things have changed in that. We've had players exiting. Obviously you had the classic growth phase, the darling growth phase when everybody opened a cyber insurance department who, who didn't previously have one. Everyone was writing it. And I presume from a broker's perspective, it was probably quite easy to get things placed without giving the same amount of information that you... This sort of classic thing that happens in a softer market... You don't have to give all the information. Presumably now you're getting better quality data and information off those clients because some of those, let's say, less committed to the cyber market have now exited.
1: There's absolutely no secret there's a bit of a capacity crunch in the cyber market. It certainly has been. And I think that's definitely given us a better chance to get the information we need to properly assess this risk and price this risk and transfer this risk. So that's been quite exciting to actually see that, not least because we can only make better decisions when we've got better data. And this comes back down to there's two sides to this. One, what's that right for us? But the way we frame this is we genuinely believe the market's going through what we feel is like its seatbelt moment. We've been able to find enough data to understand much better than we were before what good looks like. So what are the, frankly, fairly minimal things one should do as an organisation to improve your risk well enough that you're not in a position where you can just your hygiene's good enough that actually you're insurable and so being able to come up with some fairly basic ways to look at that and then ask fairly basic
0: questions of all our shorts to check they're all doing this so so the seatbelt moment is it did some people go through the windshield is what you're saying or
1: i think more this idea that you know when you look at sort of you know Thatcham and, and various places like that there was enough data emerging at that point in the past where not only could we identify that you're going to go through the windshield if there's a crash you're not wearing a seatbelt, but that causes a greater liability in the crash itself. It damages you know, the process. But actually, it tells that if you are safer, so is the car, lowers the liability, insurers can actually insure the car, all of these things. And it's, there's a mutualization between the client themselves and the insurer in terms of what is the social value of me explaining to you why your risk is better if you do this.
0: So are there continue the analogy, are there now better seatbelts available that you can all say, right, you need one, you need to put your seatbelt on, and these are all approved manufacturers of seatbelts.
1: I think I'd hesitate to say approved manufacturers. I think there's a way to go in terms of this process, but yes, absolutely. At the end of the day, we've identified fundamentally if clients are using multi-factor authentication, if they're more secure through their remote desktop protocol, and if their backups are better, the very minimum, those sort of three things...
0: Is every consumer in the last two years since lockdown has, yes, virtually everything I use now has two-factor authentication, which yeah, it didn't have yeah. before. And I could have had the same password for the previous 15 years. The number years. of
1: one-time passwords that have suddenly started emerging <laughs> in our lives, you know, I have to say that, you know, and those texts, and all of that's come from this same sort of issue. There's been a very clear, and a better phrase, it came from, you know, a fairly dark moment in terms of we were certainly seeing these spikes in severity and frequency within our losses that meant we as an industry had to do something, and it had to become very binary. So you're either doing this or you can't be insured seems to have become a broad phase. And, you know, I'd sort of take comfort that we, sitting at Axis, I feel we're one of the first to identify that, but by no means the only. And it's become very much the generic way in the industry now.
0: So we've got this maturing phase, a couple of years of really getting the house back in order and losing some of the more fair weather friends of the cyber market Mm -hmm. and retreating, retrenching to the real core cyber players and the people who really got a long-term view on this business and who want to be in this class and want to develop this class over a very long period like yourself but you're saying there's no light at the end of the tunnel for clients yet that there's still going to be price increases you feel i think there's light at the end of the tunnel in terms of it's still a while away though it's quite a long tunnel i think there's still
1: some way to go i think and it isn't just about this idea the systemic risk is inaccurately priced for yet and we as a market it comes back to the fair weather friends or whatever the issue is. At the end of the day, what's best for the client is a sustainable market. Something that actually, yeah, all told, and I feel we've had a very difficult few years. And so we need to get back to a position where we are both making profit in the pure sense, but also able to make profit in the longer term through accurately transferring that return on capital that matters. And frankly, the capital is driven by the systemic models, not by the nutritional losses. And so at that point, we need better and more accurate and more effective models absolutely to know what the capital is. But right now, we certainly need slightly higher prices. And I suspect certainly to the end of this year, we will be seeing double digit increases, they may start slowing up, you know, this is compounding for the third year. Yeah, it is a sort of have this worry in terms of you know, compounding, in terms of various other things. It's a risk-adjusted compound, I would say. <laughs> <laughs>
0: not, you're not playing catch-up anymore. You just readjust it. It's more of an adjustment.
1: I don't think it's a hard market, Mark, is my definition of this issue. In fact, I would say it's a rebasing of the pricing. So I think what we've actually done is the curve's shifted rather than we're riding the upturns and downturns of a normal cycle. With what we learned, with what we now know, and what we know about the potential, and particularly, we keep coming back to it, this need to transfer more effectively the broader systemic risk and make sure this market is sustainable through its own version of a cat type event, we absolutely need to rebase this price. And I think we've done most of that. I do think that, but I think that's the difference now.
0: Many of you might have heard the name Anaplan, but do you know how it's being used in our industry? I'm going to ask Connor Donohoe and Dan Ellis some quickfire questions. Connor, What is Anaplan? Well, very simply, Anaplan is a best-in-class, cloud-based planning and modelling platform that's used extensively by the insurance sector. And who's using it? Top-performing MGAs, syndicates, intermediaries,
2: and full-stack insurers. We have about 70 insurance clients in the UK alone. And Dan, within those insurers, which departments are using it? Well, we work with everyone from finance, actuarial, to HR, and everyone in between. And what are they using it for? They're using it for a wide range of different business planning, everything from their technical planning to their actuarial planning, even just general business planning. But they can do all of this within a platform where results are recalculated in real time and is all connected.
0: And in practical terms, how's Anaplan
2: helping their business? This is done in three main areas. Firstly, through robust models, where our customers have resilient models, but are still flexible enough to run multiple scenarios. Through collaborative working, where we're getting rid of silos and we bring all users together with one version of the truth. So everything's connected. Exactly. And finally, through scalability. Because it's on the cloud, Anaplan is really easy for our customers to scale as their business grows. So what's the real benefit for an insurer, Connor? Well, ultimately, when insurers use Anaplan, they're improving the quality and speed of their decision making. It gives insurers the agility to easily predict
0: and respond to internal and external changes to their business. And we don't think it's just a coincidence that our customers also happen to be the best performing insurers in the market. Insurers are already doing
2: a lot of modelling, and some of them are doing it without Anaplan. Why should they consider changing? The main resistance to change that we often see is that comfort with Excel. But what we want to do is take those modelling skills and really supercharge them in an environment that's fit for purpose. And with that, we're backing it up with our industry knowledge. You know, we've done this over 70 times with a variety of different insurers.
0: So how can we find out more?
2: Very easily. Check out anaplan.com, or even better, connect with us on LinkedIn. I'm Connor Donoghue. I'm Daniel Ellis, and all the links are going to be in the notes.
0: Obviously, for a market, you need a dedicated group of buyers. You know, there's early buyers and early adopters who've been reasonably long-standing clients. How's that relationship been? Because obviously, there's always the moment at the beginning of a hard market where it's just a total disbelief. It's like, well, you never asked all this stuff for me before. You never asked for a seatbelt before. You never asked for this information before. And now you're doubling the price and you're halving the size of your line. The brokers don't quite believe it because they feel a bit like they've caught with their trousers down because they haven't explained to the client that this is about to happen. They didn't see it coming. You always get that moment where there's a brick wall moment and then you get over it. Mm-hmm. So now where are we and how have you been able to bring some of those, particularly some of those long-standing clients along with you to say, this is probably the first time this has happened to you guys, you know, to your clients. And how have those relationships survived? Or have some people kind of got a bit bruised by it?
1: I think certainly it has been bruising for some, I think it would be fair to say, and I maybe come back to that, because I think to answer the first bit of the question, I think what's been really important is, frankly, for many people within the cyber market, I think the cyber market's actually, it's had a number of corrections in the past, it's not the first time it's gone through it. So this one's the the only one that's more systematic and across the board, I think that's the big difference. And so all clients in all industries have a correction at the very basic, and that's why sort of like that more shifting curve as opposed to this, you know, healthcare had a problem or, you know, we saw it in some of the, you know, retail had a recorrection in sort of 2014, 2015. So it's not just that. I think what we're talking about is everyone having having this correction, which is very different. And so that was bruising. What is also difficult for was, I don't think there was the talent used to explaining it on either side. So whether that was on the distribution side or whether that's on the underwriting side, being able to explain it beyond, I'm sorry you know, you just have to pay more. And that's been a challenge. And I think people have learned a new skill set and it's been great actually to be able to teach underwriters how to work through that and to explain the reality behind this. What we've definitely found then is if we can sit down with our clients and we can work through them and point out that we're doing this in order to create a sustainable market and because we genuinely believe this isn't usury, this is an effective way to transfer the risk in the longer term. And that what we're trying to do is find a rebase level
0: then actually those conversations tended with those long-term clients to have been better. And presumably you've been able, more likely to be able to get in the room with the client and the broker hasn't perhaps been so protective of the client. Have you been able to get close to the client because of the hard market? Well, or- I think
1: what's actually happened, we have close to the client's been a relative term in, in in the recent past, hasn't it? Well, Was like it?
0: they want to be in the room because they want to break some over your head. Well, no. we've been able to get in the
1: Zoom with them, uh, I think. Yeah, so, um, yeah, well, yes, yeah, so I think the difference is, you know, actually it's been almost easier. It hasn't required, okay, I'll tell you what, uh, I'm going to be in X city in, you know, Y month's time. I'll come and see you and we'll either break some bread and tell some stories and have a lovely time or it'll be a very difficult interview without coffee, right? So one of those yeah. two issues, it's actually been easier to tell that quicker, I think. And I think that's actually been really helpful. If I'm really honest, I think the virtual environment has been really helpful for this market. I think some brokers might argue it's it perpetuated a slightly quicker correction in terms of the pricing because... It's been more difficult to not look people in the eye and push back. I disagree. I think it's been easier to explain it properly and to actually get to the end client better and more effectively, more quickly than it would have been if we had to wait for a meeting.
0: And where are you playing now in the market? Do you have a particular strategy? Lots of people are kind of getting close to the risk, saying, What we need to do, this has shown us we need to get even closer to the client. We want to almost ride every primary get right in there you know i want to really understand these systems i want to be practically plugged into this network mm-hmm. with my client and, yep. and be monitoring and finding out what the hell's going on or i'm sure others have run 100 miles so i only want to be in excess of 500 million
1: i think there definitely are people who want to play at the top that isn't necessary where we see ourselves i suppose we have a sort of three-pronged approach to this and i think all of them are roughly on the same thing and all of them are roughly what you're talking about we believe that the only way to be in this class is to be an expert that's the only way. So, the absolute number one is expertise, and then I think you know that just matters to us on whether we're on we're training hard. Uh, we're training all our underwriters on every form we go through on what we think the best forms on the market. I'm sure it would just never have struck anyone as being a sort of class that you'd can dabble in. <laughs> you'd hope not. Um, but <laughs> you'd be surprised. Well, there you know. were a few dabblers. <laughs> I think there were. I think yes. there lies some of the challenge in terms of uh, some of the capacity that's no longer with us in the market. And so, secondly, expertise, absolutely. We definitely think that that is table stakes. You know, secondly, it's about, I think, customer proximity. And I think this is idea of actually understanding. But I think that's not just what it used to be, just as in get close to the client, understand them, use your expertise, but more. And then not even just what that might have been as well, which is, okay, a retail client needs a slightly different product and or wording than a manufacturing client. I mean, those things are important and definitely matter. But I also think what we're seeing is that a large, sophisticated client needs a very different approach to an SME. And in terms of unpacking some of these challenges, in terms of what does hygiene look like for each of those sectors and what is the minimum and or what are their compensatory controls where they're not necessarily ticking the exact box, those are different at a different level. And I think that's massively important as well. So I think that would be, I'd say, the second element of being close to the client. And then third is what we're calling ecosystem collaboration. And I think massively important not just how do we work with our distribution partners better but how do we work with our reinsurance partners better how do we unlock the broader market because one of the challenges is this capacity crunch needs to stop not because you know I want pricing to change but because fundamentally I really believe that the only way to service the clients needs in the long run is there to be enough capacity in the industry you know, I'm not worried about potential new entrants. I'm not necessarily worried about those existing entrants who are growing their books, because I think, you know, you've talked about the growth just now. This is a market that grew 35% compound, probably for as long as anyone can remember, from the sort of mid noughties onwards. Yep. Even if it slows up from its point now to like 20% compound, I assume we'd all think that's not unreasonable in cyber as a growing underlying class with new geographies coming on board. We're talking 25 billion by you know 2025 at that point. And we're talking
0: about exposure growth here and demand. You know, We're talking both. I think the interesting challenge about exposure growth at the
1: moment at the current pricing levels is trying to find your proxy again. For you know, There's been a slight dislocation between exposure and pricing at this point. I don't necessarily believe that's absolutely the case. Come back to, I think, it's a rebase point. But yeah. as in every dollar of exposure doesn't represent what dollars of premium were two years ago. So there's a balance there. Some of that is just repriced. But you know we're certainly more than twenty percent compound price alone at this point, yeah. And I think that's really, really interesting and a real challenge. So, but the only way we're going to be able to function as a market is if we find enough
0: capacity through the entire chain, from whether it's retro or third-party capital at the top. How's that going, by the way? It was implication earlier that. We've nearly got a handle on systemic risk, and obviously at the very high end, that's what the ILS people, I presume, feel that they're underwriting. They're not going to underwrite a big attritional thing, are they? No. Well, I think, interestingly enough, we're certainly seeing... Well, they might write an ag
1: treaty or something. I think we're seeing there are different appetites in different ways from different people and different funds. So I hesitate to say suddenly I think anything's a slam dunk, but I certainly think... And I know some of your recent people on
0: the... Yeah, someone like Mike Millett obviously says they've already been involved on a spaces. basis.
1: Yeah, Hudson Structured Capital... We're, we're, that was news to me, I didn't know Absolutely that. one of the first in, and I think have always been right at the forefront of trying to solve this particular problem. And I think they're a good example. It's not all of their, even investors, think have the same appetite. So how do you frame that in a way that works for individual investors as well who want different types of non-correlating risk?
0: But surely for them, the get out of bed thing is... What created the ILS market was RMS and AR, having robust models that they could believe Absolutely in. Absolutely right. I believe that's the challenge beyond everything. And we're nearly there. There's a lot of huge, so much investment. I think the models, I think they have the challenges by definition. We're early in the... Yeah, and of course, your risk is far more dynamic than property.
1: It is. At the same time, I think one of the pernicious myths I was thinking in cyber is that there's no data. You know, we have insurers that have billions of attacks a day. So how do we find a way to use the null results as much as the sort of you know, the claims data? So I think there's some interesting elements of that, and that's where I think the investment's going in some of these modelling firms and the process. And I think that's also where quite a lot of the interest is in those trying to understand it better. But it's you're absolutely right. In order to unlock this particular problem, there needs to be trust in the models, and at least a trust in terms of how you might manage your modelled output to better fit your own portfolio, whether you were the investor. Or an underwriter. So I think that's key. You need an event definition that works that you're actually happy with. And some of those can be different if you're looking at a sort of more ILW versus, you know, ILS cat bond. But
0: Of course the other thing that you absolutely want is non correlation or low nothing though non correlates, but that low correlation, but would they see a global cyber event as being a terrible thing for the stock market and all their other investments are going to tank at the same time, aren't they? I think, there are,
1: again, opinions differ as far as we've been made aware. And I think that that's the difference, isn't it? And that's what makes a market work. So you want some difference in opinion and you want some people looking for different types of arbitrage. So I think there are some challenges, definitely. And I think that certainly the long-term perception was that there was a lot of correlation. But I think we've seen certain sort of challenges, a lot of correlation in other risks that we didn't expect and some non-correlation risks we might have expected. Do you think
0: we'll be getting there and getting the supply that you need to satisfy that what you know is going to be a long-term increase of demand, whether it be 35 compound or 20 percent compound it still means that we can have very large growth and at some point of course we will run out of capacity unless we can get some more and then you won't have a meaningful product because you won't have enough capacity to solve the problem
1: i think there's a need to be a meaningful move towards it sooner rather than later and i think you know what we're certainly seeing is an appetite and i think you know again the third element has been quite interesting quite helpful is is the tail so when we look at ransomware risk one of the Advantages of, you know, what a better phrase of, of that ransomware risk is. It certainly shortens the tail in terms of, of what that looks like, and of course that in itself makes some of those scenarios slightly more attractive for some of these investors because, of course, you know the last thing they want is another form of trap capital, yeah, you know, another form. So you know the collateral release mechanisms are going to be so important, the tail understanding is going to be so important, that process is so all of those coming together and what's the
0: tale on ransomware looking like is it sort of old hat is ransomware over where obviously it's been the villain of the piece for the last two years and now have you completely got a handle on it, be able to shut the door on ransomware or Would not? that was so, Mark, would that, <laughs> that was so, um, no, we're some way from shutting the door
1: on ransomware. I think we've certainly seen some change, and we hope a lot of that is due to the hygiene factors we put in place in terms of some of the severity and some of the frequency, certainly the frequency more than the severity problem.
0: It's just that because there's still plenty of clients who don't put their seatbelts on.
1: Totally. I mean, you know, the reality is we'd like to think they're not our clients anymore, but there is definitely a, you know, the penetration levels in the cyber market are still reasonably low in terms of the global potential buyers of it. There are yeah. lots of people who aren't learning from that seatbot idea and the process. So I think we just have so much more to do there. And so, you know, this is that growth. So ransomware definitely exists. And I think the other side of this is we're permanently mm. looking at this challenge between in terms of ransomware, is it? We talk a lot about predator prey in this market. So the predator's are doing this. We, as the supporter for the prey, tell them how to put their shields up. You know, this is the seatbelt moment. And then the predator goes and does something else. One of the other analogies, you know, sort of, sorry not to sort of abuse the metaphor, is the big difference is big game hunting versus sort of this idea of, you know, Firing off everywhere and working out what hits. And what we're certainly seeing is that I think that severity is here to stay at the moment because if you're not making lots and lots, you know, your frequency, because lots more people have at least bolted their windows, then you're probably going to go and look and do your recon well and then make sure that you get a good payday on the other side of that. And that's what we're definitely still seeing.
0: So far more targeted, far more professional tile attacks. Yes, yeah, certainly. And that means that the larger
1: organizations are far from, you know, outside of this, because obviously they're the ones deemed to have the balance sheet capable of
0: paying. And out there in the cutting edge, is there any sense of what is the next ransomware? Obviously, you had point-of-sale terminal stuff six, seven years ago. You've now had this ransomware sort of bonanza for the criminals, and obviously not good for you guys. But... Is there anything else knocking about or things that you're seeing that you're worrying about?
1: Tactics are changing slightly. So we're seeing a lot more aggression once again in terms of the way that the criminal groups are attacking and the way that they're looking to exploit and their willingness maybe to delete data quicker and then their willingness to weaponize some of their
0: issues. So. So it's sort of 20 seconds to comply rather than sort of call but me in two you weeks. You either pay me and I'm not negotiating. So
1: one of the core elements we were definitely seeing was a willingness to negotiate. And that, you know, for certain groups, it's not necessarily gone away. I think the average initial demand to eventual payment is still a fraction of. But yes, you've got minimum time, I'm not negotiating,
0: you pay me, or I'm going to prove you, I've deleted. And they've done their homework, they have a much clearer idea of how much that data's worth, right? Very much so.
1: These are sophisticated groups, and they are not just. This perception that this is someone still in their parents, you know, staying at home in their parents' house is long gone. For the vast, vast majority of them, there there are some notable exceptions and some
0: interesting ones. But I certainly remember a point at a seminar I was chairing about six or seven years ago, where someone's anecdote was, well, yeah, we had ransomware on a hedge fund's files and then luckily they only asked for five hundred dollars and we just paid them five hundred dollars and thank God they had no idea that this was information about, you know, the algorithm for the fund that was controlling two billion dollars.
1: Oh yeah, and we finally And
0: they would know that now.
1: Not only that, they they know the individual they're targeting sometimes and, and they know the buttons are pushed there. We've seen some really interesting cases.
0: Something that's been as the market's matured, where people are having variations in their strategy has been I had a podcast with CFC recently, documented a change in their own strategy to say some of this, the engineering, should we call it, the security, mm-hmm. the service part of what we're doing as cyber insurers, they had made more of a conscious decision to bring that in-house rather than rely on third parties. And before, perhaps before it had been a sponsor of an ecosystem of saying, hey, get your insurance and then you should get your seatbelts from here and mm-hmm. these people and shields and all that stuff. What's your view on that? Do you think that is a long-term trend that's likely... You're going to want to bring in engineering in house in Axis?
1: I think there's real value, and we as Axis, one of the first people to bring in in house cyber expertise in, in our training advisory team and to do our own sort of tabletops, you know, from our own in house. And we also, you're welcome to come on it, Mark, as well. We offer the understanding Cybersecurity and insurance course, and that's eight hours of joy for anyone who's well, now that to I know help. about it, yeah, I'm coming. I'm coming full CPD, Mark. I know that's probably not as important as it once was to you. No, but but well, I,
0: yes, <laughs> I don't need the CPD, but actually, you know, my business system well, I don't want to make it too public, but of course it's like any other business, it's completely vulnerable to to cyber attack.
1: Maybe you need to put your seatbelt on, It's a digital
0: business. (laughs) My assets are all out there in the ether somewhere, or probably more likely on some USB (laughs) stick. Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Probably need to talk about that, but uh, (laughs) on that basis, so definitely the course is one for you, so very, you know, that side of things. So we've always believed strongly in that. I think there's a balance at this point, because and I think this is where even the experts who've gone this way are already thinking, is that You can invest in it, but it's changing so rapidly. And this somewhat probably overused phrase of how dynamic this particular market is or dynamic this risk is, but it's true. You know, it's not just a a cliche. The reality is, what is the predator-prey response? What the prey needs to do to protect themselves from the predator changes so frequently, so quickly, that if I think if you buy it in-house too often or too quickly, or you're then fixed on that... You can become out of touch and out of date pretty soon unless you've got great data and you're always getting the right insights and then you're repositioning. So I think the best approach is a balance, it is some in-house expertise that's capable of interpreting and using and some external outsourced expertise that helps you keep close, keep pros And then the other side of the suppose is geographically, as the rest of the market opens up, I'm not just talking about a market that is pretty based around, it's still sort of 60 to 70% of the buyers are US based. As other areas of the world open up, how do you find your expertise if they're all invested in America? So I think it's really important to have wider capability
0: than that. A question I've got to ask, given that there's a war situation, Russia having invaded Ukraine, Russia has always been used as one of the great bogeymen of the sort of cyber war and cyber terrorism sphere. Have we seen anything manifesting itself out of that? Was it difficult to say that you could pin anything on coming out of this conflict? Or has it at least heightened the sense of risk? I think it's heightened the sense of risk. I think that geopolitical
1: risk and cyber are inherently linked. You know, anyone who doesn't think so, I think, is deluding themselves, quite frankly. Because we haven't needed war on land for there to be warlike acts in cyberspace. Totally. And I know you know this, about My background was a political risk underwriter before I was a cyber underwriter 100% of my time. And so I'm a little obsessive about this particular issue as well. Obsessive to the extent that we've always believed within our policies that every one of them needs a war exclusion, and it needs a war exclusion we like and trust. And I have to say that that's sort of universal. We have war exclusions we won't follow, adaptations we make to our war exclusions. And one of the core elements of training for our underwriters is what good looks like in that space. So it's not just about what good looks like on the risk. So I think that's really important. And we're definitely seeing that coalesce around the market, a view of there might need to be some war exclusions that might not be as good as others. I think that's fair.
0: And with the exclusion, will then that become a point of development for a specific cyber war affirmative market?
1: I think it'd be really interesting. I think we're more likely to see a cat-non-cat cyber market develop than a war-non-war market develop. And I think maybe that cat will have an element of war coverage within it or an element of the systemic risk that could work there. But the reason, let's always remember, that the war exclusion exists and why it's important is because I don't think there's enough capital in the world if some of these events manifest themselves. And so I think that that's why we have to have certain exclusions. The infrastructure exclusion is another key one within cyber, I believe, that, you know, we need to make sure every policy has one of those because the failure of the internet is not insurable, quite frankly. We could get on to why I don't necessarily think that that's a real thing, but that's a, you know, are issues. So there are really important backstops. And I think it's really important to remember that's why the war exclusion exists and existed well before this current geopolitical situation and will need to keep and develop well after it. Will it need to learn and adapt from, you know, recent events? And would it all war-exclusion be fit for purpose? I think
0: that's a question that markets always need to ask themselves. I think we've covered nearly all the topics that are on my list of questions in quite a roundabout way in a very conversational way. So I'd like to ask you, in a general sense, would you say we're at a point of, you know, maturity now for the cyber market of what is there? Are you happy with this market in the state it is now that it's in better shape than it has been for a while? I think the answer is yes, Mark, but there's always a yes but, isn't
1: there? And I think you know, having seen the development of this market and having proudly felt you've know, been part of it and really enjoyed that process, there've been a number of key moments. And I think the last two or three years have been a massive shift in the maturity of this market and the approach people take to it. So we couldn't have had conversations about, you know, beyond the odd isolated out, outlier, what's the ILS market going to do with cyber, et cetera more than five years ago wouldn't have been the case. We can now, and we can reasonably expect there to be significant changes there. And I think there's a core element of the maturity. I think the other side of it is, and maybe we didn't unpack this well enough when we talk about pricing, the key to me function of a really good market is there's a delta between good and medium risk. I think bad risk shouldn't be insured at this point. We don't need the you know the capacity to go to bad risk at this point in this market. We're not commoditized enough that we're fighting over anything like that. But I think there needs to be probably a better understanding of the delta, you know, as in not this minimum, but what really good looks like. And I think there's an interesting, and I think a proper market, that's probably a maturity we still are working our way towards. We'd like to think we're on the way there. And I think certainly we'd like to think that we select some of the clients. And when we talk about those difficult conversations, some of the clients who've always had a bit of a delta between their pricing and similar benchmarking organizations, those are the longer term relationships you want to have, you know, the the work. So I think that's key. And then the thing that does keep me awake at night that comes into this is the talent crunch. I think we are in a real challenge here. We do talk about the need for more capacity. That capacity is going to have to be peopled. Um, it's going to have to have good people involved in it. Ten years ago, there were probably 50 places you could buy cyber insurance from. There's probably now 500. There weren't 10 people at each of those 50. So there's a lot of those 500 that have been led by people with you know less than 10 years experience in the market. And some of those are brilliant, so that's okay. But where do we get to when we get to 5,000? And I, I just worry at that point. That's the thing that we need to keep working on is make sure we have a talent base that is effective. Uh, a talent base that's well-trained, a talent base that's knowledgeable, a talent base that can actually accurately assess and transfer this risk. And that's only on the underwriting
0: side. Presumably, it's, it must be quite hard to go and find people who are going to underwrite coal mines who are 22 because they can see there's no future in it. So it's going to be banned by 2050 or whatever. Which is a good so thing. So at least with cyber, it's very sexy. You know, every young insurance professional, I think, would have had their eyes open and said, this is cool. This is like the coolest class to be in, certainly over the last five, six years. Again, okay, now it's had a crunch. But presumably, at least you don't have any problem getting people into it.
1: Not in the grand scheme of things. And I think, obviously, there are others. You know, I think, uh, you know, transactional risk. Uh, Market is very sexy at the moment. And obviously, renewables, you know, markets are doing wonderful things for the world and justly should be able to recruit people as well. So I think there are other markets, but definitely it's... uh It's just, are there enough? And as I say, it's not just here, it's the brokerage community, it's the distribution, it's having enough talent to make this market sustainable is what worries me, because what we end up with otherwise is quick upturns, quick downturns,
0: and I don't think that's what sustainability looks like. So you'd like to see more investment from everybody, all the counterparties? I mean, training,
1: training, 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 because I think this is a market, as we say, the table stakes should be expertise, and I'd really like to make sure that we can all look each other in the eye and know we know what we're talking about.
0: I think you're a fantastic ambassador for this part of the industry. And I hope all the listeners are enjoying this because I really, you're a go to person to help explain something that could be horrendously complicated in layman's terms and in insurance terms for the rest of us. So I really appreciate you taking some time to come on the show. It was two years ago. So certainly would love to have you back on the show within the next two years because, of course, this is such a dynamic market. It's bound to have changed enormously since then. I don't know whether I should dare you to make any more predictions about. Well, cyber insurance will never be more expensive than it is today, rather than cheaper. I still think there's some way to go in the price. But I do hope, I
1: genuinely hope, because I think there's more than enough room for it, that we find a way to find better, more effective capital. But I really believe, and this is, I think, the one thing I will come back to, is the only way we're going to do that is to work and understand the systemic risk. And I think that isn't sold for yet. The models are in the oven, but there's a lot of baking still to do. And I think that
0: is going to be the proof of the pudding. That's going to be the really crucial moment. It? Absolutely. Because otherwise, we're going to hit the buffers, I suppose, as an industry.
1: Absolutely, and rightly so. This is where senior management, boards, etc., are going to say, well, we feel we've got enough of this risk on our books.
0: Once your fourth, yeah, your big yeah. reinsurers have said, we can't do any more. Totally.
1: But the way to unlock that capacity is to explain the models better and to understand them better and to work out what we're going to do about it. So I keep coming back to that because I think that's the key crucial consideration in the maturity of this market is better modeling, more effective modeling, more accurate modeling, better understanding the models to make sure we get to the next phase of that
0: necessary growth. Yeah, but I'm looking at you, and I'm, I'm looking at someone who's optimistic, right?
1: I am. I like, Because I think the data exists. I just think we need to work through what the data is doing. It's, again, data to information, information to insight, insight to action. And I think we're getting there. The action's available.
0: Dan, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Mark. It's an absolute pleasure. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, Don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience, because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance podcast is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass.